And we're glad to have you here if you're visiting with us today. If you haven't been with us, we've just been, the last year since last fall, we've been walking through the story of the Bible, through the narrative scripture, seeing how uh, all those little stories add up to tell this one grand tale. And today we're going to be looking at uh, what we call in scripture the exile. Um, I want to start with, have, have any of you in your lives felt like some, at some point along the road you, you hit rock bottom? Where you, you look back and you say, this was the low point in my life. This was a, a point when I, I didn't see it getting any worse than it was where I, where I currently was at that moment. Um, the, the kind of the pit of despair. And I, I've been there. Um, and, and this last, kind of the end of last year, beginning of this, this last year we had here, 2017. Um, I've always had bad hips. You guys have seen that, me waddling around, right? Um, but... Last May, um, my brother and I, he helped move me into my apartment in Soldatna. It was up three flights of stairs, all these heavy furniture, and I don't know what it was. I didn't hear a certain pop or anything at one particular time, but something in that move wrecked my hips. And for that point, the next several weeks was turned into months. It was just even difficult to go from a sitting down to standing up position. Things had gotten uh, pretty rough for me, and, and it sort of threw me into this tailspin of sorts. And I couldn't work out because of how desperate, you know, the pain that my hips were experiencing. And so I sort of gave up trying. And what I found, what I started doing, and I wouldn't have called it this at the time, but I started turning to compulsive overeating. And if I said, well, if I, if I feel bad, then I'm just going to look to something to make me feel good. And so I turned to food. And so looking at the store in the, in the candy bar aisle, I thought, why buy one when you can buy five, right? That kind of became my motto. And it started this self-defeating spiral. By Christmas, I was over 255 pounds, the largest I had ever been in my life. And I was in more pain than I had ever experienced before. Now, now understand this was a long, slow process. I didn't just wake up one morning and go, you know what I should do? I should become morbidly overbeast and in a whole world of pain, right? That was never like the plan. But this series of little choices got me to the place where I, I turned and I looked in January. And I said, where, how did I get here? How did I get this far? How did it get this bad? I was at rock bottom. But oftentimes it takes our thick skulls and the Lord's grace to let us get to rock bottom until we realize we need a change, and that change needs to happen from something outside of myself. And so I knew I had to do something, and I went and I saw my good friend Mark Hutton. He's been my role forever since I was in high school. I hadn't seen him for a number of years, and I came to him, and I said, something's got to change, Mark. And he looked at me, and he said, you're right. You need to lose 50 pounds yesterday, right? I mean, you are looking. I'm like, hey, hey, you're supposed to be encouraging me, you know. And, uh, but what he did, he says, your hips are toast if you don't make some significant changes, so he put me on this, this diet, and I, think, I still think this is the Lord's retribution for all the paleo jokes I've made over the last few years. And so he puts me on this diet, and because of my state of desperation, because of how serious my situation was, I was totally willing to dive in gluten-free head first, right? So here we go, and I do this, and as of, since January 5th to this day, I've lost 67 pounds, and I've never felt better. My, my hips are better. Now there's still some deeper problems that, you know, the, we're going to have to get replacements at some point. But deeper than just the weight or the hips, I mean, those things are symptoms. 
But what I got to that point at rock bottom where I recognized I needed to make some changes in my life and started addressing some of the sins of overeating, of, of immediate gratification. And ultimately, at the bottom, there were these sin issues that needed to be dealt with in my life. And we see today, we're going to look at the story of Israel, what we call the exile. God, at long last, as he had promised, if you continue to disobey me, I'm going to drive you out of this land of milk and honey that I had provided for you, had promised to you the entire way. Um, and, and what we're going to see here is just like with my story, Israel's descent into exile it didn't happen overnight. It was a long, slow, downward process, a series of poor choices. And what we're going to find today is that while God is always faithful to warn us and tell us what will happen, he will also let us descend and hit rock bottom because oftentimes we need to get to that point until we finally look outside of ourselves and turn to Jesus. And as we read this story today, I, I want it to be a warning to us that we might become aware of the state of our hearts today, that we may not drift like Israel drifted. This thing is serious. We're not playing a game. Life and death is at stake here. Now, we, uh, you thought I forgot. So here's our review. Uh, these are our motions to help us remember the story. We're on the last row. Uh, this is the exile. Um, if you haven't been with us, we're just doing these motions to help us remember the story. Now today, exile, take both your hands, put them in front of you. Might be a little bit different. We're sitting down. Uh, you're going to be carried away into captivity this morning, all right? So just prepare. So that's exile, all right? So from the top, we got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, and exile. All right, good job. You guys all get a cookie. Um, the exile might be, probably is the saddest point in Israel's history. This is the lowest of the low. This is rock bottom for them, being forced, led in, 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 in brutal uh, torture and captivity, led out of the land that God had promised to them. Now, remember we said last week the kingdom was divided. There are two kingdoms now. There's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes called Israel, and two tribes to the south called Judah. Well, Israel is the first one to go. And if you look up here on this map, um, the exile of Israel, um, it was by the Assyrians, and we'll see in 2 Kings 17. This entire green area on the map is just most of the known world at the time, the nation, the empire of Assyria has just taken over. I mean, most of the population of earth at this time is being ruled by the Assyrians. And what happens is these Assyrians, they, they rule the world for about 700 years, which in the, the scheme of world history is a long time for one world power to be uh, in control. And it's from 1300 to 600 BC. Remember in BC, you're counting down. Um, and they, their capital of Assyria was the, the, the city called Nineveh. You remember the story of Jonah? He's called to go preach the gospel to the Assyrians in Nineveh. And that's the book of Jonah that you can read in the Old Testament, um, and you'll see why Jonah might not have wanted to go there. Nineveh and Assyria in general was known for their brutality. When they would capture other nations, they would skin their enemies alive. They would torture them, and then they would take the skulls of their enemies and make these huge mounds of like decorations, lawn ornaments in the capital city just to strike terror in the hearts of the people. 
So it's hard to blame Jonah for not wanting to go there and preach the gospel, amen? And, and so Jonah, um, he, he does go, he eventually preaches the gospel, but what happens is um, Israel themselves are led away into exile, driven out of the northern kingdom about 722 BC. Over the course of a three-year span, uh, they're led out of Israel. Now, the, the, they, they are dispersed throughout the empire as slaves. And the tragic part of the story of the northern kingdom is they actually never return. The, the people of Israel are never seen again as an entity, as a national entity again in the world's uh, history stage. And they become known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. God's people scattered and never to be gathered again. And then Judah, they do a little bit better. They last 120 years, but eventually their wickedness catches up with them again, and they too are exiled. This time, though, it's not the Assyrians, it's going to be the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they take over, and you can see this green part, most of which used to belong to Assyria, is now them. And in in the early 600 BCs, uh, Babylon and Egypt are on the rise. There's this young upshot king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he takes over Egypt and Assyria, and now Babylon reigns. They're a world power from about 626 to 539, so significantly less than the Assyrians had ruled and and reigned. And what we see is they're actually going to carry Judah out of of their kingdom in three successive waves over the course of about 30 years. The first one comes in 605. That's when Daniel and his buddies, you remember the prophet Daniel, they're led away in that first wave. The last one comes in 586. And, And in this last one, they take away King Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, and this guy, they kind of leave him there um, after the first two exiles as just kind of a puppet king. You just kind of do what we say, very much still under the rule of the Babylonian thumb. They leave the poorest of the poor people there to just kind of tend to the vineyards uh, and and the, the livestock and stuff that they had left in Judah. But Zedekiah, he foolishly tries to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebi says, that's it, you're out. And in 586, he leads him out. In fact, he makes Zedekiah watch his own sons be slaughtered His eyes are gouged out and he's led away um, like a lamb to the slaughter out of his own country. They reduce Jerusalem to rubble. They burn the temple to the ground. The kingdom period of Israel is over. And what gets introduced is what we call the time of the Gentiles, where Israel is no longer a world, world power. In fact, they're no longer a nation. It's this tragic, dark period in Israel's history. If you came for a pick-me-up this morning, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not what you're going to get. And during this time of the exile, the people became uh, known as the Jews. Uh, And if you ever wondered where did that come from, how do you get Jew out of Israel, it actually comes from the word Judah and the tribe of Judah. That's why they're referred to in this period as as, as the Jews. Um, And what we'll see next week is unlike Israel, a portion of Judah, of the Jews, actually are allowed to return and rebuild the wall and the temple there in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that next week. But what I want us to see this morning is we're going to see a story and we're going to hear a warning. We're going to look at the people of Israel and what got them to this place where God said, you can't even stay in this land And not only do we want to hear the story, but just as important, we we want to look at at this long, slow drift that Israel makes away from God and where it takes them. And, And we've got to have ears to hear this morning. 
to, to heed the warning of Israel so that we too in our hearts do not commit the same sort of rebellion, that long, slow drift away from God and His grace. Because we are all capable of what Israel was capable of. So let's look at Israel's story. We're actually going to look in 2 Kings 17. This was the fall of Israel, and this is a, this is a great uh, account of just the, the slow demise that they had. So look with me in verse 5. It says, The king of Israel invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. Finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, Samaria fell, and the, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, and like we said, over the course of three years, Israel was taken away into exile. Now, now watch this, and what we're going to see here, as they start to tell us the fall, is that the heart, the heart of Israel's fall was a failure to worship God exclusively, to worship Him alone. Look at verse 7. This disaster came upon the people. Why? Because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. At the heart of Israel's sin, at the heart of their rebellion, was a failure to see and worship God rightly. That was at the heart of, of their sin. It's the heart of every sin that we ever commit. When we don't hold God in the right place, when we don't see Him in the beauty and the holiness and the sovereignty that He is, and we do not ascribe worth to the only one that's worthy of being ascribed worth, we start to make the same slow, long descent. And you see here in this verse, they're rejecting the very one who rescued them. In the story, it says, God's the one that rescued you out of Egypt. God's the one that in his grace and mercy gave you this land and protected you and kept you in this land. And you are now sawing off the very branch that you're sitting on. The foolishness of the people to bite the hand that feeds them, to worship the God that loves them and protects them. But I have the same bend in my heart. And then you look at verse 9. The people of Israel had also secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns from the smallest outpost to the largest walled city. They set up sacred pillars and asherah poles at the top of every hill and under every green tree. So what we see here is they start worshiping. It said they're not worshiping God anymore. Instead, they're worshiping these other gods, two main gods that they were worshiping at the time. The first one, her name is Asherah. She's the goddess of sex. In fact, it was hard to find a family-appropriate picture of Asherah because of, of the, uh, the sexuality that even the idol itself exuded. And the other god that they worshipped was the god of Baal. Now, Baal, or, or Baal, would actually be the, the better pronunciation. God was the, he was the god of, of, of rain and of thunder, really representing power. And so what Israel was worshipping was sex and power. Not a lot's changed, has it? We think, how in the world, who are these people bowing to these gods and goddesses? Man, if we don't see that we do the same thing, we miss it. We miss it. And so what happens here, and look at what happens. There's are baby steps that are made. The people of Israel had also secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. Now, now we ought to hear this because what it says, it starts subtly here. There's a secret world going on. You think about the, the Jewish man who, who, who leaves his family in the night. He goes and he bows in to the goddess of Asherah, engages in illicit sexual activity, and then he comes back the next morning and sits down to a kosher breakfast with his family. And then he goes to work, 
And nobody ever knows the difference. You see, we play this game where on the outside everything looks good. Everything's going like it should go. And we pretend that we're these upstanding citizens. We come to church on Sunday morning with a smile on our face, wearing our Sunday best, pretending that everything is awesome, right? Yet I've got all these things going on in secret that nobody else knows about. And if someone comes and they check my web browser, what are they going to see in the history? And if they look at my texts, what are they going to find out? And if they got to look at my heart, and if they saw what was in my mind, what would they see? I'm always amazed. We, we started Celebrate Recovery back in March, and it's just this time where we circle up and just share the junk in our lives. And it never ceases to amaze me as we share with each other, oh man, you've got all these issues too? <laughs> like, so do I. And we see that below the layers, there's all this mess, there's all this sin going on that we're all trying to hide from each other. The reality is we're no better than Israel. There are all these things that we're doing in secret, these double lives lives that we're living. And what we'll see, as with Israel, is what seems small, what seems secretive, what, what might even seem harmless at the time, ends up being a series of disobedience that has massive consequences and destruction. The slow drift away. In verse 15, they become, they worship, and, and this is profound, look at what it says, they worshiped worthless idols so they became worthless themselves. You see what he said? They worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. What is he saying here? And this is the truth that you become what you worship. You become what you worship the things that you lift high, the things you put in front of yourself, the things that you continually seek after, you actually start to become like those things. There's a guy from uh, Dallas, Texas. His name is Matt Chandler. He's a preacher. I love Matt Chandler. I watch a lot of his sermons. I listen to a lot of his sermons. And you know what has started to happen? I've started to become like Matt Chandler. Like all of his little motions, like he does, I'm already Italian, so I already talk with my hands a lot, but he does this like weird herky-jerky thing when he's talking, and I'll be doing my sermon, and all of a sudden I feel myself doing the herky-jerky, I'm like, oh no, I'm becoming Matt Chandler. Or, or he does this laugh where he's like, <laughs> and I'll be talking to someone earlier last week, and I'm like, and you know what I'm saying, <laughs> oh no, I'm becoming Matt. And it, and it happens. And, and not only, you know, the, the outward things like mannerisms and laughs, but deeper. I mean, and for better or for worse, the things that he's teaching, the things that he values, the way he sees Scripture, as I attend more and more attention to him and, and revere what it is that he's saying, I start to care about the things that Matt cares about. I start to see the world the way Matt sees the world. And we need to be very careful what we put in front of ourselves and especially what it is that we choose to worship. And God says, if you will worship me, if you will behold me, you're going to become like me. That's the Christian life, is to see Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we see him, we'll start to reflect him. We'll start to look like him. But if we worship and revere and look at the things that are corrupt and worthless, then we become corrupt and worthless. And it dehumanizes us from who God created us to be, and that's like him. 
And the next point that we see here is that the hardened heart is capable of any and all evil. Verse 14, but the Israelites would not listen. They were as stubborn as their ancestors who had refused to believe in the Lord their God. They followed the example of the nations around them, disobeying the Lord's command not to imitate them. Now remember what we talked about. When they first came into the land, they were told, drive out these other nations or else you're going to start to worship their gods. You're going to start to act like they do. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 17, they even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire. They consulted fortune tellers and practice sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. Now, some of us might look at this from an arrogant standpoint and say, well, see, see, that's the difference. I would never go that far. I would never sacrifice my own son or my own daughter in the fire. I would never openly practice witchcraft. I'd never go to the lengths that Israel went to. But understand, this is not the first paragraph of their descent. Where it started was in the secret things. They lived this life that everybody would have said they just look like a normal, upstanding citizen. But the long, slow drift led them to this place. And as they continued to harden their heart and kept compromising, they got to the point where they stood there and go, how did we get here? How did we come this far? Behavior that you and I would have never condoned we realize that we're capable of doing those exact same things. They came into the land kicking out these nations who had practiced child sacrifice. I'm sure no Israelite crossed into the Jordan and said, yes, I want to sacrifice my own child like they did. I think that was on anybody's radar. But over time, they became the thing that they worshipped and started doing the exact evil that they had originally condemned. And now they're calling it right and good. And this is scary. And this is serious. And this could be any one of us. And until we watch the news and we see the evil that humankind is capable of and recognize that that same evil is, is, is capable in my own heart as well, I do not see the depths of my sin and the beauty of my Savior. We have to understand we are capable of what Israel was capable of. Slowly but surely, you become what you worship and we're capable of any and all evil. And then we see the fact that God is always faithful to punish sin. Look at what happens here. Because the Lord was very angry, angry with Israel, he swept them away from his presence. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel. He punished them by handing them over to their attackers until he had banished Israel from his presence. They did not turn from these sins until the Lord finally swept them away from his presence, just as all his prophets had warned. So Israel was exiled from their land to Assyria, where they remain to this day. God told them what would happen. He had warned them. This is not without them knowing. God told them, this is my law. If you keep my law, you stay in the land. If you disobey my law, I will exile you from the land. God always communicates with us everything we need to know. In the Garden of Eden, it's not like Adam and Eve were randomly walking around the, 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 the garden and picked a, a fruit off the tree, ate it, and God jumps from behind a bush. Ha ha! I got you. You're not supposed to eat that. I know I never told you you weren't supposed to eat it. No. He laid it out in Genesis 2. If you eat of this tree, you'll die. He told them what to do and what not to do and what the consequences would be if they did it. And this is the exact same thing he's laid out for Israel. And by his nature, he was true to his word, and he must exile them. And what this shows us is that under the law of Moses, Israel was, God told Israel, you got to keep these commands if you want to be in a relationship with me, if you want to stay in this land. 
And, and we have to understand that the law was never intended to save. Because the law can't save. We're sinners. And as sinners, the only thing we can do is sin, just like an apple tree can only produce apples. And so Israel was set up for failure from the beginning because there's no way they could keep the commands. They couldn't keep one command rightly, let alone 613 of them. And the law was designed to show how sinful they were and to point them to the coming deliverer who would keep the law for them and become their righteousness and take their sin. And what leads us to the second point, God is always faithful to offer deliverance from sin. God is always faithful to offer deliverance from sin. This is incredible to see the patience of God with the people of Israel. He's been dealing with these knuckleheads for 1,500 years, and they've continued to be unfaithful, they've continued to be rebellious, and God continues to show them nothing but mercy and grace along the way. You know what taught me a lot about patience this past week? I am not as patient as God is. 1,500 years with Israel, I can't take five nights with these little kids, right? I was just praising the Lord for my state of bachelorness at the end of this week. I, no, I, and uh, that's what led me to William Tell, this little girl, right? She was just cutting out a line. But I thought, man, how, I mean, put that down. Take that out of your mouth. Don't touch him. Quit. And it would just, I mean, it just drove me crazy. And it's like, how, how many times do I have to tell you, don't put that in your nose, right? And we continue to go on and on and on. And you think of God and the way that he patiently waits for Israel, that he, that he guides Israel, that he walks with Israel. And here's what we see is that even here in the exile, God is not going to slam the door shut, not because Israel deserves it, but because God is a God of grace. And what he does here, you remember back in, in the story of Noah, when the whole earth is so corrupt, he says, I need to just wipe this thing out with a flood. But he says, I'm going to save a remnant. Eight people, Noah and his family, are going to get onto this ark, and they're going to survive. And I'm going to see them through. He's doing the exact same thing here in the exile. And what we're going to see is that he's going to save a remnant of Jews from the tribe of Judah. He's going to save this remnant, and this remnant will return back to the land that he'd promised. Remember, he's made these eternal promises that David's throne's going to last forever, that the land will be theirs, and so he's going to keep his promises to them. And notice that that is why God is, is staying faithful here, because God is always true to his word. He cannot turn his back on himself, and for his own glory, and because he loves these people. He stays faithful to his promise, the promise that he made clear back in the garden to Adam and Eve that said, I am going to send a deliverer to right your wrongs. It's going to crush the head of Satan. It's going to defeat sin and death. And he keeps this promise to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to the exiles of this time. It's this beautiful grace that God gives us, by definition, undeserved. And so we see at the time of the exile these two books that are written. The first one's Daniel, and there's these incredible tales of these four men who stay faithful to God when everybody else has turned their back on the God of, of Jacob. These inspiring tales of bravery where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will not bow the knee to this idol of Nebuchadnezzar. We worship the one true God. And we see Daniel who does the exact same thing 
these men who stay faithful in a faithless world. And then we see the story of Exter, this beautiful story where God uses this obscure, exiled Jew and elevates her as queen of Persia for such a time as this, is the way the book says it. And he uses Esther to, to deliver her people from extermination by Haman. And what God is showing is that even in exile, he is faithful to his promises, that the deliverer that he has promised is coming. And just like these people could push it all in, bet the house on God's faithfulness to his own word that he would send Jesus, you and I today can look back and push it all in, saying Jesus came and he was enough. So we hear Israel's story, but we also have to heed the warning. If we don't hold up a mirror, that's right, I'm talking to you. If we don't hold up a mirror and see ourselves here, we miss the purpose of this story. We've got to heed the warning, and it's time to do a heart check and to say, is, is my heart soft, or have I hardened my heart? Are there secret things in my life that I'm harboring? Are there patterns of behavior? Is there a scary road that I'm heading down? And we're all over the map in this room. Some of us are in that secret mode. Life looks good. Some of us are at rock bottom and we have nowhere else to turn. And we have to understand that we are capable of what Israel was capable of. There is no depth of sin that our hearts cannot engage in. And if we don't believe that, this is what Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There's an arrogance that comes with us thinking, I'm good, I'm good. And even a lot of times after a big victory that God's given us, we go, okay, thanks for getting me on dry land, God. I'm good. I'll call you if I'm ever in a bind, but we got this from here on out. Every day sustained by his grace. And the second we think we're standing on our own two feet, there's a fall coming. And it doesn't happen overnight. Nobody wakes up day one of their wedding, after their wedding day, and says, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. No one just wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to become an addict to that substance. No one says, I'm going to completely turn my back on God overnight. It's a long, slow process most of the time. Most of the time. And this is what it's been said many times. Life is a long obedience in the same direction. Life is a long obedience in the same direction, meaning it's a series of little choices. And before you know it, you look back and you go, how did I get here? There have been things that I've done in my life that if you had told me, you know, months ahead of that, years ahead of that, that that's where I would have been, I'd said, you're crazy. I would never do that. But little mistake, little mistake, you know, little sin, little sin. And before you know it, you're miles away from true north. And you go, how in the world did I get here? But here's the good news. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've drifted, you're not outside of the grace of God. And even Israel, in the pit of their their despair, in the depths of their rebellion, God told them that they could turn to him. And look at this. This is crazy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is God calling a shot before Israel's even entered the promised land. Look at the words that he says. In the future, when you experience all these blessings and cursings I've listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart these instructions. This is amazing. God knew his people were going to turn and rebel on him and be unfaithful to him. He knew it was coming. He told them it was coming. 
but God loved them enough to walk through this experience with them anyway. And look at what he says in verse 2. If that, at that time, you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I've given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy, mercy, mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. He says, even when you're in the depths of your exile, your rebellion, if you will turn back to me, if you will seek the Lord, you will seek my mercy, even there, I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. And then verse 19, he says, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and cursing. Now call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. And man, you and I have the same choice today. We can choose life or we can choose death. We have a choice. But don't put that choice off. Because we don't know when he's coming back. And when he comes back, the time for choosing is over. And he's never going to force us. He's never going to force us to choose. But he will always be there. And this, this is the gospel. The gospel is that no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how far you've fallen, whether you're in the secret mode, whether you've hit rock bottom, God is always there to forgive and to restore. And if the lost sinner turns to his Savior, he runs to the prodigal like the father with open arms and says, welcome home. This is our God. This is the gospel. But we need to be warned by Israel here. There is no neutral setting when we're following Jesus. If you're not moving toward him, if you're not clinging to his grace, then you are drifting away. It's a long, slow, dangerous drift. And that's not the kind of thing that I love to say. It doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. But this is the truth. This is what the word says, and it's my job to tell it. We have a choice between life and death, that we would cling to Jesus, that we would cling to Jesus. Next week, we're going to see that a remnant of Judah follows Deuteronomy 30, that that they turn to to God for his mercy, and God is going to restore a remnant of people back into the land. And that's a word of hope for us. Let's pray. Father, we're all over the map here tonight, this this, this morning. And uh, God, I know the propensity of my own heart to drift uh, and and to, to look at other things to to save me, to, to, to protect me, to, to, to give me worth. I see in my pride that, that I want to be God. I don't want to let you be God because that, that acknowledges that I'm not in control, that I don't have the power, that I can't do things my way, that I can't do what I want. And God, I just confess that. You are God. And I pray that we would be a people that would worship you rightly. And no matter where we are in this room tonight, this morning, no matter how far we've gone, no matter what it is that we've done. And it's easy for Satan to beat us up and to, to, to show us the, the, the shame and the guilt to point us within. But Lord, no matter where we're at, we can lift our eyes up and see Jesus, the one who's made a way, the one who's forgiven, the one who offers deliverance, the one who offers restoration, the one who offers life and peace. I pray that today we would choose Jesus, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not drift from you. And that you would give us each other to point each other back to the one that offers hope. Lord, you are the God to be praised. We have 10,000 reasons to praise you. And may we praise you rightly as you are to be praised. And it's in the Son's name that we praise you and that we pray. Amen.